0: One, two, no. And um, here we are on City Limits. It's the fifth Wednesday of the month this month. We've got five Wednesdays. Special, special special Very special. Yeah. (laughs) It was Meg Kimber talking. How are you, Meg? Good. Good. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, Andy Britt over there pressing the buttons. I'm Kevin Healy. You're okay, Andy? Very well, thank you, Kevin. Very good, very good. Cheers. And uh, therefore, today has no specific subject, but we have obviously got a specific subject, which is um, this attack on university academic freedom, et cetera, mm. and, we're going be, and other aspects of, of universities and what's happening to them. We're going to be talking to Colin Long, who's the uh, State Secretary of the, of the Union, the Tertiary Union. And uh, we we're talking to him fairly shortly, actually, because he has to be somewhere else by ten o'clock. So we're going to go to him uh, and have a, have an interview. And I did mention to him, but also because people might be aware, Cohen has also taken an interest for a long time in the uh, the problems of the garment workers who are so exploited in Bangladesh. Mm. And, uh, he has visited there a few times, so we'll also have a discussion about that with him um, in the course of the interview, and he, he said he's quite happy to do that as well. So there we are. The we'll goal pour some tea. Um, you're um, you're going to need gems to... Uh
1: Wow. Well, um,
0: Which, of course, is your name backwards.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah.
0: Which I'm sure you're very aware of I, and people tell you all the time. Not all the time, but this has been mentioned. <laughs> um, well, no, I'm sorry I said that. Never <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: people with those situations most hate it.
1: <laughs> no, I, no, the last time was many years ago that someone brought that up. Right. It's always a compliment. Um, I, I looked at the financial review uh, mm. after we spoke yesterday. Mm. Um, there's, there's a lot to do with university things going on. So they had an update about the funding cuts. Yeah, they've got an tertiary to the educa- educa-
0: incidental, but today they've got, actually got a financial review sponsoring a tertiary education summit thing.
1: Oh, really? So that's
0: why it's pair we're doing in the news this week. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a
1: lot going on in the universities. Yeah, and
0: it turns out to be coincidental because this interview arises out of the fact that the Melbourne Uni is trying to um, take academic freedom in its new um, new. Bargaining process with the union, but anyway, it's all fallen into place nicely.
1: Yes. Mm. Was there someone who was sacked from the Mel- Melbourne Uni for saying something on Facebook? Is that right? Or? Not that I'm aware of. There oh. was a
0: bloke. At, I think it was Victoria, Somewhere. wasn't it? One of the. I think it might have been Victoria. So a bloke a couple of years ago had his um, email access restricted because of something he was he sent out on oh, email, okay. you know, commenting on something. Yeah. Uh, look, Colin will know. I'm not sure. I mean, mm-hmm. you, might, you might, may well be. Um, mm. But look, I do want to raise, before we go to comment, I want to raise something that, because um, I know you two have probably spent the last couple of nights uh, tossing and turning and hardly getting any sleep, over the fact that the CBS network has made the what may well be the winning bid for Channel 10 here in Melbourne.
1: What's CBS? Uh,
0: it's American Network, one of the big networks oh, in America. It's out CBS. outbid poor Lockie Murdoch because poor Lockie was locked into the problems. Oh. Of the government still trying to get its new legislation through, its new... Media legislation through which would allow him to own that and own oh. everything else, but anyway, oh. yeah. But no, look, I know what you've been worried about. Well, I want to tell you that there's it's it's been pretty well guaranteed that hits like Master Chef Australia, have you been paying attention? And I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Will continue as normal now. Oh, phew. Now you can go back to sleep tonight. And, <laughs> yes. So your entertainment value is assured.
1: <laughs> Oh, that's interesting.
0: <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? It's really interesting. Um, and uh, on uh, a more serious note, of course, we've had um, this attack by yet another attack by Peter Duffer on uh, Peter Dutton on um, on asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I, I thought this would be a nice way to look at the Herald Sun this week because, um, as we always do, because while I. Consider. I don't want to be praising the Age because I think the Age is, in many ways, even more conservative. And in most mm. insidious way, I think it's quite an insidious paper. In that sense, it has a reputation of being small L liberal. Mm. But Monday was a good example. Um, the head, the story in the Herald Sun was asylum seekers loophole to be closed. Asylum seekers are using a medical scam to live in homes rent free. The federal government says wow. properties in the Melbourne suburbs of Dandenong and Epping are among those involved. Dufford declared that is up for asylum seekers from Manus and Nauru using legal means to stay in Australia following medical treatment and costing taxpayers $40 million a year to support. Because it costs a lot more to support them in Manus and mm-hmm. Nauru, but that's, mm-hmm. let's ignore that little yeah. factor. And it goes on. You can, don't need to go on. You can imagine where the story goes on from there. Um but on the same day, the front page of the Herald of the Age was full of a, a young boy asylum babies face uncertainty. Like most children born in Australia, Samuel, and they, these are false names, is a happy and healthy toddler who loves animals and visiting the zoo. But a federal government decision to cut almost all support for dozens of Australian-based asylum seekers may change his future. He was born in Australia after his parents along with 370 other asylum seekers captured under the new visa crackdown were transferred from offshore processing centres for medical treatment. And then the story continues on another page, but it goes on, and it's very sympathetic to these people, the Mm. whole story. Yep. And uh, it doesn't doesn't say they're bludging terribly. Mm. And then the same morning, Monday, and I think it's another good example, um we had uh, the herald sun story on the rally in in richmond on monday on sunday about safe injecting rooms with a photo of cops scuffling with people and emotions boil over in over injecting room bids. Scuffles broke out, and it goes on in that vein. So it's all that was the thrust of their story. And you go over to letters page, and the top of the letters page are Richmond March supporting injection rooms riles readers at Herald Sun, and you can no need oh. to read the letters. I mean, oh. on they go. But again, the same morning. No, I there actually. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> yes. it was
2: sort of a bit sad the whole counter thing. Yeah, you know, people talking about their personal stories, and you could hear. This crap going on in the, in the background,
0: background oh. yeah, and it wasn't discovered. I mean, the police were just holding back the other people, weren't they? But mm. that seems from the age photo.
1: Was but there two groups of people there? Yeah, I see, and some for and some against. Yeah, and the there police were
0: traitors on almost on Victoria oh. Street. Mm.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, had it was, I know, it was and, ones. Oh. and as I say, the age story was Richmond rallies for safe injecting rooms with a photo of the people supporting it and then an inset photo of the police holding back the other lot hundreds of Richmond residents have called on the Andrews government to reconsider its opposition to safe injecting rooms following the deaths of 34 drug addicts in the laneways a crowd of about 600 listened to the heart-wrenching accounts of families etc so again two two absolutely different aspects of the same stories Mm. Um, which I think uh, you know given my attitude to the age anyway but it certainly says a lot doesn't it about uh, the old Herald (laughs) son
1: I think there's a rally on this um, Saturday, the 2nd of September, for um, the refugees in Manus and Nauru. So, organised by the Refugee Action Collective, Ah, as far as I I can tell. Yeah, Yeah, if I can get some more information about it, I'll confirm that later. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's what Facebook is telling me. That's good. Mm. That's
0: good. Okay, look, we'll take a break. We've got lots of things, but we'll we'll get on to Colin Mm. Long because I think he's got limited time and we want to talk to him for a while. So after this break, Colin Long and uh, tertiary education. Okay, we've got Colin Long on the line. But just before we go to Colin, um, arising out of that uh, latest burst of compassion from Peter Dutton, you've found some information (laughs) there, Meg.
1: Yes, some people who want to have a few words with him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, September 2nd um, at 12 till 3 at the State Library, um a public action to welcome refugees and to make it known that you want them to be welcomed into australia so um yeah organized with the refugee action collective so have a look online and find out more that's this
0: saturday at 12
1: I believe so, it's yeah.
0: November 2. that that'd be this Saturday at I'm going to
1: be there, so th- <laughs> definitely there'll be one person Oh, that's like right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, there'll be a few of them, so yeah, we'll be right. We'll be right. Um, that's good, though, anyway. It's been mm. organised. Excellent. Colin Long on the line. Colin is Secretary of the uh, National Tertiary Education Union here in Victoria, State Secretary, and um, Colin, um, it's been in the news the last week or two that Melbourne seems to be trying to stifle free speech, as it said, um, by – by having a clause in the contract, but it's not actually binding anymore in terms of what they can do if people say things they don't like. Um, comment on Ah, uh,
2: Good morning. And sorry, thanks. A start for ruining my morning by meeting mentioning Peter Dutton's name. <laughs>
1: Welcome to my world. This, this, <laughs> this it, it
2: does really set me on edge when I hear that man's name.
0: This program, this program, <laughs> program Colin, specializes in making people feel depressed. So we, we got you off to a good start.
2: Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah, so Melbourne University has decided we, we've been bargaining for a new enterprise agreement or collective agreement at Melbourne Uni for. A while now uh, and the management has decided that they want to remove from the enterprise agreement which is a legally enforceable contract between uh, a university or an employer and its workers. They want to remove from that whole lot of stuff uh, but one of them is uh, the protections for academic freedom uh, and they want to put it into policy. Now anyone who understands industrial law in Australia knows that Putting something in policy does not have any legal enforceability. It's just a um, parenthood statement, really, that doesn't protect anyone or protect any particular rights. And strangely enough, after this story broke uh, earlier in the week, um, management sent an email out to the uh, staff and said that it was a very serious issue, academic freedom, and in fact it was too serious to put it in, uh, the collective agreement, i.e., it was um, too important to have it protected by law, and they would just have it in a parenthood statement. So, you can under if you can understand that. Please let me know what that means.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, we'll work on it. <laughs> <laughs> it was too serious to uh, to mm. make sure it was properly uh, protectable under workplace law. So, there you go. Hmm,
1: that does it is part of,
2: It is part of a a general trend across universities to attack the our collective agreements at the moment are uh, under a serious attack at a number of universities it's about reducing the role of the union re- reducing uh, rights and entitlements of workers making it easier to fire university staff making it easier to uh, employ people on insecure, in insecure forms of work mm. um, it's a very serious Attack on the conditions of academic and other staff. Uh, serious attack on uh, the union, and the the less understood but still very serious implication is an attack on academic freedom and freedom of uh, mm. freedom of thought in many ways.
0: So these other so it's, I mean you mentioned there were several things, including academic freedom. So there's all these other things they're trying also to get into the new agreement.
2: Or to remove from exist from the, the agreement yeah, that it of, currently yeah. exists. Yeah, so things like um, protections around disciplinary action, um, protections around uh, use of fixed term and casual employment, uh, um, protections around redundancy, things like that. Mm.
1: Um, it seems like in the last sort of eight or nine years, there's a lot of changes that have been happening for academic staff. What do you think is the driver behind that in terms of the increased casualisation and the universities? They're trying to reduce costs in wages, are they? Or what's the what's the push for, from them?
2: Certainly cost is a big driver. Uh, the, the number of students uh, has gone up quite dramatically in the last 15 mm. years. The number yeah. of staff hasn't gone up by anywhere near the same amount. Mm-hmm. And university funding is always under threat from either side of politics, to be honest, in mm-hmm.
3: uh,
2: when it comes to the federal government. The current government is proposing yet again further funding cuts to the sector. Mm. Uh, the the demand-driven system that was introduced by the previous Labor government is also—it's really a sort of a, a market-driven, almost almost a voucher system where mm. and virtually anyone can get into the university.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, which I mean, we welcome the the expansion of tertiary education mm.
3: system, mm.
2: but it, it requires an appropriate expansion of funding to the tertiary education system as well. To yeah. especially when more young people are coming into university from uh, different backgrounds and Mm. from different pathways, not necessarily from um, after high achievement at high school. Mm -hmm. That's fine by us, but Mm. you've got to put the money in to make sure that those kids get the opportunity, once they've got Mm. the opportunity to go to university, they get proper um, Mm. support and proper education. Otherwise, you just have high failure rates, which is starting to be seen in some institutions. Yes. So the the other thing that's driving all of this is the growth of uh, managerialism and corporatism, the treatment of universities as business organisations. And I see today uh, in the paper this morning, uh, the minister, Simon Birmingham, saying that universities have to start, they can't think of themselves as being Um, different to any other business and have to Mm. uh, behave like a business and profit and loss and supply and demand and all that sort of thing. So that sort of approach where universities are essentially seen to be institutions selling selling degrees rather Mm. than, Mm
3: -hmm. um,
2: Mm -hmm. you know, deeply important organisations that are... vital to our cultural, social and economic future mm. uh, and not just businesses. Uh, people just don't think like that in higher in the mm-hmm. higher echelons of universities these days.
1: So you have more students with uh, more complex and diverse needs and who are paying more for degrees that are getting less time with teachers because um, professors and lecturers are under stress and... Not being paid for all the hours that they're working, it seems. Yeah,
2: workloads are a yeah. very big problem, but also the growing amount of casualisation. So mm. we've we, we've estimated that at least fifty percent of undergraduate teaching in Australian universities now is conducted by casual mm-hmm. staff. Mm. Um, many of whom are really struggling to put together enough work to make a basic living.
1: Yes, I know some people who do that work and mm-hmm. know the struggle that they have. Yeah,
2: yeah, you, you would and then lots of people would have friends who are doing mm-hmm. casual work yeah. and it, we've been, as a union, trying to uh, improve our representation and organisation around um, mm. casual workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for universities, the equation is very simple. They just Costs so much less than mm. ordinary, and we know uh, teaching and research. Stuff. And
0: we know people, Colin, who've been in the system for years who just don't get tenure, so they're living always on this ridiculous situation where they've got no no permanency.
2: Well, yeah, I mean the the, the concept of tenure is a bit misleading in Australian context. There is no real tenure as such uh, for anyone. The tenure was really in the old way of thinking, was essentially a university couldn't get rid of an academic who had tenure <laughs> yeah. unless, they, you know, unless they killed someone or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but today, I mean, it's possible to make any academic redundant, for instance, or take them through a disciplinary or performance procedure, all of those sorts of things, mm. like any, anyone else. I mean, our, our protections and our agreements around some of these matters... Uh, are strong, but that is partly to protect academic freedom. We don't want universities to just dismiss academics because they don't like what they say. And that's partly why universities are trying to undermine our collective agreements now, because we do have strong protections around academic freedom and the rights of academics to say things and not be disciplined for
0: it. Hmm. Just back on that funding situation, uh, you know, if I have a bet and I get a result, I get a dividend, so to speak, and if people want to exploit workers that own shares, they, they are given a dividend. Uh, i always thought a dividend was something you got. Um, on what basis of English is an efficiency dividend, in fact, a cut in funding? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you
2: know, there's plenty of... Um... Newspeak out, out there in, in, in the world today is there? You know, it's uh, when um, putting um, asylum seekers into concentration camps and mm. slowly destroying their mental and physical health is about protecting people from drowning at sea or something mm. like that. Um, you know, uh, yeah, the efficiency dividend is. Uh, <laughs> A dividend of the government, that's <laughs> well, that's for sure. It's on the dividend of the universities by any means. And that's 2.5% the government's proposing to cut there. But they're also proposing a 7.5% uh, sort of... I'm not sure exactly what they're calling it, but an arrangement where if universities don't meet various targets, uh, maybe about student satisfaction and so on, then some of seven up to 7.5% of their funding could be under threat as well. So... For some universities, it could be a very dramatic cut in funding. And it's a very strange approach, this. Uh, you cut funding if a university is not doing so well. Mm. Normally, you would think you might actually invest a little bit more money if, if a university is struggling, mm. a bit like the AFL has managed to do to, to bring uh, lots of clubs up from from the uh, from poor performance by putting extra money or extra resources into them to bring them up to standard. But... Apparently that works for the AFL, but it doesn't work for universities. When you're doing badly, you
0: should cut money further. Mm. Yeah, the uh, well, in fact, of course, um, there was a there was an article in the Fin Review a couple of days ago. Because it's coincidental to our interview, but they're holding this higher education summit this week, and I noticed the people at the summit. There's not one person representing workers or students at all. But that, that aside. Um,
2: it's the, usually far the, too expensive these summits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we can't,
0: <laughs> can't afford, afford it. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll solve all the problems. But anyway, um, by tomorrow it should be all over the problems of ed- tertiary education. But um, th- we we'll just t- wait to
2: hear what the solutions are. They'll yeah, they mentioned to the this.
0: government could bypass the Senate by just doing some statutory sort of cutting. But they the things they suggested were this could include cutting research funding, capping student places by limiting demand-driven funding. And abolishing programs such as the six hundred million higher education participation and partnerships program, which helps people from low socio-economic backgrounds study at university. So these are areas under attack, which is what picking up your point, pretty pretty awful.
2: Oh, absolutely. There, there are other than the two and a half percent efficiency dividend. There are many other programs that are under attack and that do not require legislative uh, or uh, parliamentary approval that can be. Uh, altered through regulatory means, and yeah, some of those programs you just mentioned uh, uh, are su- there. Some, the, some of the programs. There's also programs uh, to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in, in, in universities, and those are also likely to be cut. So um, it's unfortunate that we don't hear it as much about those, the threats to the funding of those programs as well. But they're very much under threat.
0: Mm. And these problems, of course, go back to really well—at least the Howard era—the bringing liberal, you know, neoliberal economics into universities. And at that period, the chancellors all went, or vice chancellors all went along with Howard and said, "Yes, we've got to turn universities into into business institutions and corporations." But now these cuts are so savage, even the vice chancellors now are coming out and, and challenging the government on this one.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, I uh, look with the honorable exception of one or two vice chancellors.
1: Mm, I remember the vice- it, it, that at University of Tasmania I recall the vice chancellor marching in the protests against um, voluntary student unionism.
2: Well, that's remarkable for yeah. the, the vice chancellor of Tasmania because has not always been uh, a great supporter of
1: uh This was many years ago. Adjust- oh, right, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was like um, 10 years ago or more.
2: Oh right! Yeah, it's uh, different now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, look, vice chancellors, I, I have to be, I have to say, have been uh, very poor defenders of the system. They have generally been supine, prepared to do whatever they have been asked to by governments. It was only what two years ago when. Christopher Pine was the Minister for Education and proposing the complete deregulation of the system which would have allowed universities to charge essentially whatever they wanted for degrees, that most vice chancellors were great cheerleaders for that reform mm. uh, or, or that regressive uh, imple- um, policy impost. Um, so for them today to be uh, complaining about the 2.5% cut, well... They were more than happy to go along with government policy when it allowed them to extract more money directly out of students, but now when the government's just proposing to extract more money out of their budgets, they're not quite so happy. Uh, we can't rely on uh, Vice-Chancellors to defend the sector. They haven't d- defended it well, and I don't expect them to change that.
0: No. A woman called, on, on just on that point, a woman called Alison Wolfe, you might know her, um, she's a well, you might know her personally, but she's a prof- she's a professor at King's College London, and she's written a lengthy article about the state of tertiary education in Britain. Much of which I think could apply here, and I'll just read a section where you see and get your views on it in terms of does it apply here. For England's, for England's highly paid vice chancellors, high fees and world-class research are the core of success. They behave like the CEOs the government urged them to be, rewarding themselves like business leaders and focusing business-like on... On maximising revenue and reputation, several admit quite openly they attempt they have t- tempered any criticism of the recent mm-hmm. higher education act for fear of losing an inflation linked fee increase. Instead, they have lobbied to head off any limitation on international students, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But does that uh, ring a bell here as well?
2: That could very well have been written about mm-hmm. Australia. Univers- Vice chancellor salaries in Australia, I think, are some of the highest in the world. Um, mm-hmm. There are several now that are over a million dollars. Um, most of them are in the high eight, 800,000, Many of them over, yeah, as I say, over a million dollars. Their increases have been fairly spectacular. When um, they're trying to ensure that staff don't get substantial pay rises or any or even reasonable pay rises in this current round of bargaining. Uh, the, the university vice-chancellors do very much see themselves, I think, as CEOs of large corporations. Uh, we would like to, as a union, see limitations on vice-chancellor salaries and maybe set in, in relationship to a multiplier of how of the lowest paid staff member in the university, mm. you know, some appropriate multiplier or, or a relationship to... Um, the minister. I mean, they're, they're, when the salary of a vice chancellor is much higher, double or more, of the minister of education, it's just hard to understand why how that can be acceptable. They are effectively public servants, and the public servants be being paid well over a million dollars. Um, well, mm. for anyone to be being paid over well over a million dollars, that, that should include private CEOs of private companies. I say. Um, is
0: wrong. Mm. Although, given the properties of our ministers for education, it's not all that surprising, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, yeah. Meg, did you have anything to... Yeah. Uh,
1: I just, um, it makes me almost speechless, the, um, the way that it's operating to, at the disadvantage of of many students who are paying more for their degrees with a lot of uncertainty. Like, even mm. if you do an academic degree and then you go into the field of academia, you're facing a lot of job insecurity... Um and then other and, and then teachers who are working in, in that area, professors and, and researchers, uh, not being valued, and then certain people really, really make a, a great advantage out of this, like the CEO. so it seems just makes me a bit um, speechless, really.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I looked but it also should be, I mean there is a nuance in this as well in that there are a large number or a good number of staff. Academic staff who are doing okay, but, you know, yeah. and this is one of the more insidious aspects of change in the university sector over the last several years. Is that there has really been a a division in the workforce itself. So, um. the in in order to achieve those that reputa- the high reputation that Kevin mentioned for, that was in that article you read from, you know, in, in order to achieve the the international fame and so on related to research, which is really important to getting your university high in the rankings. Mm. Universities are trying to find high-flying professors and other researchers and paying them a lot of money, Mm. giving them terrific conditions of work. But Mm. then then they've still got a whole lot of students to teach, so they have to find a sort of academic proletariat that Mm. is responsible for... Teach, doing all the heavy lifting teaching work and mm-hmm. churning the students through, which is still the basis of university funding. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where we're getting this sort of uh, bifurcation of the workforce where a, a large number of pretty um, put-upon, hard-working mm-hmm. uh, teaching staff who are struggling to get research time at the lower end and then a um, mm-hmm. number of high, high-flying professors and so on at the other end. Who are pretty well
3: looked
1: after. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yeah, you have um, paying, gaining research staff so that you can get a good ranking and get more students, and and then you get more students, and you need more casual staff to, to provide for those students and don't necessarily that's, support them to give them the best education that's possible with the best, with the staff that, that they've gotten in. Well,
2: uh, what is remarkable is that despite the large number of the high number of casuals doing teaching um, there's not a there's not much evidence that educational quality is largely is particularly suffering because of mm. the large number of casuals but that is only because casuals go out of their way mm. and are exploited and mm. do so much without pay yep. to ensure that students do get a decent education yeah so all of the, the the load is put on those staff to uh, mm. to make sure that Students don't suffer, and they and those staff make sure students don't suffer by suffering themselves.
1: Yeah,
0: mm. yeah. yeah, and going on research, um, it seems to be increasing amounts of money coming from industries that uh, want research that helps them. Is this again changing the face of research in many places?
2: Well, this this government has pushed the idea of industry connection for universities very hard. Mm. Um, now. Of course, there's nothing wrong with the uh, with research that's performed at universities being turned into um, commercialisable or usable uh, innovations and inventions and so on. But the problem is when re- research funding is very very much linked to the the needs of particular businesses, or when businesses themselves corporations start to uh, provide funding for particular research centres or, or pro- professorial chairs and all of that sort of thing uh, and we're finding this in particular there's a growing amount of money going into universities to fund student scholarships, to fund research areas, to fund research chairs um, from fossil fuel companies, for instance, mining companies, oil companies, and so on. And that really has a fairly insidious influence on the research agenda of many universities. And and I think Mm. your listeners can understand the really serious ramifications of that when universities should really be investing all of their resources into uh, trying to think about how our society can... Have a future and how we can move to a sustainable and decent um, new world mm. uh, and they should be investing in renewables and all sorts of things like that. There are still many projects funded by these companies around um, the use of coal and oil and so on. So mm. that's uh, and we have problems around pharmaceutical companies funding research. Uh, so it is, a, it is a growing problem and there are very few constraints on the relationships between universities and private industry. Uh, if universities can get money out of industry, they will take it. And uh, there are very few restraints. A university like Monash University has established a, uh, a committee to foster links with industry and a large number of its board members are either fossil fuel companies or big pharmaceutical companies. Mm, and that's, that's, fair, that's fairly typical.
1: Yeah. It relates back to the idea what we were originally talking about, and what's been picked up in the media about this the um, the issue of free speech. Really, doesn't it? If you're getting corporate interest, then you may have pressure upon or put pressure upon your staff to not speak out against particular industries. You see that as a risk? Uh,
2: uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, traditionally, large numbers of people see the greatest threat free speech is coming from government Mm restrictions. But that's not the case.
3: Mm. It's
2: very much not the case these days in so powerful uh, big corporations in our social, political and economic life that in many ways they are the biggest threat to uh, freedom of speech in our country. Mm. Not only only because of the restrictions on what workers can say Mm. in in their jobs or the the way uh, companies are analysing people's social media posts and using that against them to sack Mm. them and all sorts of things like that. Mm. But uh, as you say, with the influence of corporate money in universities and shaping the research agenda, Mm. um, these are really serious infringements on
0: freedom of speech. Mm. Mm. On a related matter, in fact, um, just the the committee that's overseeing this attempt to cut funding or cut uh, tax um, benefits for NGOs, environmental NGOs, that speak out on environmental yeah. issues. And the government's recently appointed to the committee that oversees it, a bloke from the Minerals Council and other business people, so they're, they're using that end to, to cut them off at the bottom. Yeah,
2: so that, that is a truly... Answer. That is one of the truly insidious uh, things going on. But, you know, it, it's, there's a whole pattern with uh, the Liberal Party and the, or the Coalition parties, both at national and state levels, where they're attempting to uh, restrain and repress any uh, sources of uh, critique of, of their policies, um, they're particularly trying to stop the environmental organisations from defending the environment and mm-hmm. environmental justice of individuals. Um, their attacks on the union movement are, are a serious attempt to destroy the union movement um, overall. Uh, so, mm-hmm. th- th- when they when the liberals talk about freedom, they're always it's always about the freedom. Mm-hmm. To exploit and to make money. Well, freedom broader,
0: in liberty, freedom and democracy. The freedom word means freedom of capital, of course, not people.
2: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And um, that is a very serious, uh, growing, um, growing problem that I don't think enough uh, focus is given to. In fact,
3: mm-hmm. now we've seen
2: this also with, with uh, liberal governments previously in Victoria uh, and in. Tasmania, where they have tried to introduce laws to restrict protest
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and to restrict the rights of unions to picket. I mean, the laws against industrial action in Australia are some of the worst in the, in the mm-hmm. OECD. Mm-hmm. Um, there is effectively no right to withdraw your labour, no right to strike in Australia, except under the most um, constrained circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, once you enter a workplace, you effectively become a serf in this country Mm. Um, and people don't understand how bad Australian workplace law is and how anti-union it is, which is why I'm very pleased that the ACTU has recently embarked on a campaign to change the, the laws, fundamentally change the laws because it's now acknowledged by unions and the ACTU that the whole system is fundamentally broken.
0: Yes, the Ennis Willocks from the one of the indies, one of the councils. Yeah, um, one of our clo- bloke, I'm sure you admire as much as I do, uh, Colin. Ennis um, wrote in the Financial Review this week that the laws are already so far slanted toward the unions that any, fir- you know, uh, we could end up with union dystopia. He said. <laughs>
2: uh, look, it, 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 it's hard not to laugh at that that sort of thing. It it, it is truly bizarre. I mean. We have just experienced yesterday how, well, how slanted the laws are in favour of unions where uh, at our, one of our universities in Western Australia, Murdoch University, the management applied to have the collective agreement that the management apply, uh, agreed to um, some, a few years ago with the union. They uh, applied to have that torn up and all of the staff on, at that university revert to the award, which is much lower terms and conditions of employment, and the Fair Work Commission uh, did so. Mm. It tore up the collective agreement, and now all of the staff at Murdoch University are thrown back onto the award. And um, the award, as I say, is a lot worse than the collective agreement. If we want to um, take strike action, it is almost impossible. The rules against strike action, the whole process takes six to eight weeks to, um, to... from go to woe to get strike action underway. Um, so usually, you know, in the old days, someone was sacked. The, the, the workers would just go and walk, walk out under the grass for the afternoon and say, if you don't reinstate that bloke, um, we're going to stay out here and the bloke would be reinstated. Now, um, it, the bloke will be thrown out for no good reason. And six weeks later, we managed to take a little bit of strike action after or a little bit of industrial action after a whole um, six weeks of going through the, the Fair Work Commission with the employer opposing it in every stage. By that stage, the, the bloke who's been sacked has decided he needed to move on because he couldn't starve for six mm. weeks. He needed to go and get a job elsewhere or or move interstate or whatever. So uh, the, the rules are so fundamentally broken and weighted against, yeah. and wasted against mm. unions that, I mean, people like Innes Willock... I mean, uh, They are simply propagandists. Uh, They are their whole... There could be no clearer case of the rules being stacked against workers and in favour of capital. And all the figures show it. All of the the inequality that exists Mm. in Australia, the the wages at their lowest level of increase uh, on record, never a greater share of the national output in in the hands of capital
0: compared to workers. I mean, for him to say that, it's just a joke. <laughs> well, man, I mean, I won't mention him again. Look, <laughs> a, a listener called Alexander has, um, has rung in and he asked us to ask this question. He says, nine of the 38 vice chancellors get paid over a million dollars. The UNSW vice chancellor justified his over a million salary by eight campuses worldwide. Answer is it is to demutualize the universities. What do you think? Demutualise. Demutualise. Uh, I presume he means to t- turn them back into un- into educational institutions.
2: <laughs> well, uh, it's a bit odd. I mean, a, mut- a mutual is like effectively a cooperative or, or, or an organisation owned by its members. Demutualization mm. of you know, AMP and organisations like that occurred some years ago, and it was a disaster because that was when the members of those organisations decided to sell up their shares to private businesses, and they became completely private organisations, so I'm not quite sure what is meant by demutualisation there, Uh, but in terms of, I mean, universities exist under uh, state government um, acts, parliamentary acts, and they should start to behave again like uh, government organisations and public, or more importantly, they don't have to be, you know, directly public servants, but they, they need to behave like public institutions, not like private institutions. So if that's what he meant, mm. I, I agree with that. I
0: suspect that's what he meant.
2: Yeah, I, I yeah. think so. Yeah.
0: Colin, before we finish, I know you've got to be somewhere else by 10 o'clock. Um, just, I did, we did say we'd have a quick yarn about the current situation in um, Bangladesh, mm. um, where the um, at the moment, Australia's playing cricket there, is it not? And, um, it is. I, I, I imagine that um, the women you, you talk about, who are the, mostly women who are the garment workers, they're good, they're, their conditions these days are so good, I imagine they'll be in the front row of the corporate boxes during the test. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: think that's probably unlikely. Uh, they may be there as servants for the, <laughs> the garment factory owners who will be in the, in the corporate boxes for sure. Uh, It's it's interesting you mention Bangladesh. Only this morning I noted a BBC report that uh, Mr Rana, who owned Rana Plaza, the factory that uh, collapsed in 2013, killing over 1,100 workers, uh, has just been charged and convicted of corruption Mm. um, and has received a fairly minor sentence. He has yet to be um, convicted of any offences related to the collapse of the building, although I think the corruption charges may have some uh, tangential relationship to that, but but the the I mean he should be charged with industrial murder or, or just straight out murder because that's exactly what mm. the Rana of building collapse was. And, the, and of
0: course, the earlier one, the fire where many more workers were killed. And,
2: Hasreen, and, yeah. yeah. that's right. Yeah. And uh, they were locked still... in. That's right, and uh, you know we're still seeing um,
1: periodically
2: uh, disasters occurring in factories in Bangladesh. Can
0: so, uh, I, 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 I just cut in? I should have mentioned, I didn't mention, that you've visited there a few times and taken an interest in this, which is why we're asking you. So, yeah.
2: Yes, we have an organisation called Australia-Bangladesh Solidarity Network, and we've been trying to work with some um, uh, activists in um, Bangladesh to help organise uh, amongst factories, especially factories manufacturing for Australian uh, retailers. So um, mm. yeah, we're continuing to try and support those um, activists over there. It's not easy because union organising in Bangladesh is is thoroughly repressed by the government. There is even an, an organisation called the Industrial Police, mm. who's primary job is to um, make sure that unions don't organise them to um, to beat up workers if they go on a strike or take industrial action of any sort. Mm. So it, it's still a very difficult situation. Some improvements have no doubt occurred since Rana Plaza, since the accord on Bangladesh Fire and Building Safety was introduced. That has probably led to the improvement in some building safety, but uh, as far as we can see there's still major problems in unions being able to
3: organize
2: amongst garment workers and that is the only real long-term solution to the problems of of workplace deaths and ex- exploitation it's not uh, western retailers deciding that they're going to uh, pay a little bit more for the shirts they sell or signing on to some sorts of accords, um, making sure that there are improvements to building safety. They're important things, don't let me dismiss those. They are important things, but in the end, the only thing that's going to improve conditions for workers properly is the right for unions to organise and for them to get out and properly organise the factories, because there's a very small percentage of garment workers in Bangladesh who are members of unions, and it's, there's a good reason for that because uh, employers attack people, attack people, bash people, rape workers um, if they try to join unions they're, and they're, it's very difficult to legal, get legalised unions functioning, there's lots of yellow unions existing in Bangladesh that are effectively working for the employer, all of those sorts of problems. Um, so there's been, there have been improvements. There was an improved increase in the minimum wage after the Rana Plaza, but that also led to intensification of work by employers to try and make up for the, the their added cost. And then workers were also subject to increases in rents and all sorts of things. And the minimum wage is still well below a living wage. So there is a good campaign in Bangladesh and other places for a living wage, which is much more important than a minimum
1: wage. Mm. You mentioned that there was Australian retailers involved. Who who are they that are using these factories?
2: Oh, large numbers of retailers are using Bangladeshi factories. Most of the, um, the big places like Kmart and so on mm. uh, use Bangladeshi uh, retailers. I'll be a little bit careful because some of them have changed their... Um, sourcing arrangements recently, so I don't mm-hmm. want to name anyone who mm-hmm. doesn't use them anymore and and 3CR gets sued, mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. I get sued. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. most of you you only have you just go into any of the major retailers, look at their labels, and you'll see most of them are, um, mm-hmm. have got some products from Bangladesh. And the cheaper they are, they're, they're more likely to be back from Bangladesh, although, I mean, China is no... Uh, workers' paradise either, of course, or Mm -hmm. any of the other major uh, countries producing garments. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can't produce clothing and sell clothing at the prices that occur in many of the Australian retailers, especially the uh, discount retailers, Kmart, Big W and so on, Mm -hmm. without Getting those garments made under incredibly exploitative conditions in places like Bangladesh. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, well, it's it's not a good situation. It's only minor improvements then, Cole. Really,
2: I think there have been some improvements to building safety. Some really dangerous factories have been closed down. There have been improvements to the structural integrity of buildings, but there are still accidents, if you call them that, occurring. Mm. You know, there have been boiler fires, boiler explosions. Um, and outside the garment industry, there are still you know, other parts of the Bangladeshi economy like the ship breaking, uh industry which yeah, are yeah. incredibly dangerous yeah. as well yes. um, but there' there's still the, the levels of exploitation and the levels of less spectacular injuries you know so everyone no- notices when a boiler explodes or a or a factory collapses um, but it 's those Injuries from excessive and work and long hours, the, the injuries to hands, arms, eyes, backs, just general injuries to bodies over long periods of time, that render, you know, many women garment workers unable to work fairly early in their lives, actually, because mm-hmm. of the damage that's been done And them. That, that sort of thing is just, it's. It's not spectacular, I guess, and it just doesn't get mm. the sort of attention that it deserves, and it goes on all the time.
0: And you're forced into lifelong poverty.
2: That's right. Uh, um, well, you're you're going to live in poverty so, even
0: if you're working, but you're even worse off if you're not.
2: Well, that's right. The wages are too low to have a, any sense of comfort. But as, as soon as you, but you'll never save money on the wages, so if you're, if you are injured or you have to finish work early, there's no cushion to fall back on, and the mm-hmm. social welfare system is you know, virtually non-existent yeah. in a country like Bangladesh.
0: Yeah, all right, Cole. On that, on that happy little note, we're going to have to wind up. Perhaps on a on another. Well, it's compared to that. I was going to say another more serious matter, but i That's joking. And uh, but I know you'll be the big the big item you'll consider this week would be the reappointment of Nathan Buckley at Collingwood. Have you got? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, Look, there are some things I can't change, so I don't care about them. (laughs) (laughs) Right,
0: including the performance of the Collingwood Football Club. (laughs)
2: Yeah, uh, I have probably more ability to uh, have an influence over working conditions in Bangladesh than I do over the appointment of the Collingwood coach. Uh, I was very pleased that Collingwood, um, sorry to your listeners who might be Melbourne supporters, but I was very pleased that Collingwood did... uh, strike a blow against the bourgeoisie by knocking Melbourne
0: out of the finals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we well, we'll look on that. No, thanks for that and um, we'll talk again but um, keep the keep going, keep the work up. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks a lot. Colin Long there who's State Secretary of the Tertiary Education Union.
1: Fascinating. Yeah. 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 Mm. Now
0: just before we go, um, tonight uh, at 7 o'clock for people in the area, this, this campaign around the government flogging off public housing uh, um, estates and and putting in private, we'll give, hand maybe to the private sector with as they keep saying there's going to be more public housing but as we know that's more one bedroom stuff etc and it's not you're certainly putting less people back uh, but mostly it's just a, a chance to give it to the private sector to profit from. Grand Place, there's a community meeting tonight at the Richard Lynch Senior Citizen Centre at Peacock Street, Brunswick West, those who live near the area will know it, 27 Peacock Street Brunswick West and there'll be speakers from the Fitzroy Community Legal Centre. There's people from the uh, tenants themselves. Um, and um, so people will be given advice there tonight as well as anything else. And it's part of the protest. So don't let our community be destroyed, says the leaflet. Grand Place Community Meeting. That's tonight, at, as I say, um, 7 o'clock, 27 Peacock Street, Brunswick West. And that's organised by the usual, by Friends of Public Housing and uh Socialist Alliance, the Unitarian Church, Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton's involved and Friends of Public Housing. Um, if you want more information, 0402 four oh two six oh four six three nine. 0402
1: And we had so a great song at the beginning of the we show. We did.
0: Look, we and we got one now. We'll, we'll go out. We'll probably, how long's it go for? Uh, 3 minutes and 10 seconds so the joe so will be it in starts probably in 2 seconds yeah. we'll all right, be right let's go here it <laughs> comes this is a great great song called goodbye cool world see I you next
3: the week